0: So, it's February 1st. We survived January. Um, I have a calendar in front of me that says we are 32 days into the new year, and we have 333 to go. So, (laughs) not doing great in terms of how much more time we have to go in 2023. But, hey, I mean, maybe this year will be good. You can always hope. But anyways, at the time of recording, I pulled up a really interesting article that came out today. It's more of an index, actually. And it's The Economist providing a daily chart, and it shows the world's most and least democratic democratic countries in 2022. And the headline for it is, Our Global Democracy Index uh, shows several authoritarian rulers tighten their grip. And anyways, I'm going through this. It ranks countries throughout the world from full democracies, which are dark blue all the way to bright red, which is authoritarian regimes. And in, in between, you have hybrid regimes, which are actually kind of interesting. Hybrid regimes are a mixed type of political system that's often created as a result of an incomplete transition from a, like an authoritarian government to a democratic one. So we see a lot of those in the world as well. Then you have flawed democracies and then full democracies. So <laughs> I just wanted to go through a few of these before I get into the actual show, because it's kind of interesting Brazil, for example, is ranked (laughs) close to the United States. Both of us are considered flawed democracies. We are not considered full democracies on this scale. Brazil is ranked 51 with a score of 6.78. The United States is ranked 30 with a scale of 7.85. But to put that into perspective, Spain is ranked 22 with a scale of 8.07. So it's a full democracy while the U.S. is considered a flawed democracy. If you look over at Canada, for example, Canada is ranked 12th with a score of 8.88. It's a full democracy. Australia, score of 8.71 with a rank of 15. You get up into Scandinavia, for example. Sweden is ranked 4 with a scale and a score of 9.39, full democracy. Norway, ranked number 1, full democracy, score 9.81. And then, just to put that into comparison, the U.S. is ranked 30 in terms of its democratic expectations and its willingness to actually have a free and fair democracy. It's interesting, though, when you look at other countries. I mean, France is a full democracy, but it's not doing, like, that much better than the U.S. But then you get down to Mexico below us, hybrid regime. It is ranked 89 in the world with a score of 5.25. Really abysmal if you think about it. Even Morocco, hybrid regime, a score of 5, rank 95 in the world, considered hybrid regime. But then I think you see the biggest drop from the previous year is probably Russia. It's now ranked authoritarian regime. I mean, some would argue that's probably been that way for a while, but now it's ranked 146 in the world with a score of 2.28, so not ideal. And, you know, the, the troubling thing here is that you have a lot of countries that are either the The lighter dark blue, which is flawed democracy, and the dark one, which is full democracy. But there's a lot of red and yellow in here, which means hybrid regimes and authoritarian regimes. China, Afghanistan, Burkina Faso, Chad, Central African Republic, Congo, Niger, Mali, Algeria, Ethiopia, Egypt, which I'll talk about in a little bit, actually. Another one. Yeah, there's a lot of red on this map. So. You know, everyone talks about twenty twenty-two being the year of pushing back against the authority authoritarians, at least in the United States. Well, it looks like around the world that might not be as good as we hoped, so. Anyways, let's get to the actual show. Sorry, I just wanted to share those because it's an interesting one. I will share the link for this in the podcast notes, cause I just enjoy reading these type of things and you should too. It's always interesting to see. But anyways I want to talk about Egypt on the brink, why people think it's going to be less stable, less peaceful, more poor, and a more angry place. I also want to talk about hotspot policing. I want to talk about Matt Schlapp, getting his Schlapp schlapped. And I also want to start, though, with Netflix and Tom Brady. (laughs) Look, Netflix is something, I am not a culture commentator. I usually don't follow entertainment stuff. But Netflix, in my opinion, seems to want to lose its users. It wants us to hate it. It wants us to drop the subscription platform. I think for a long time, we've always heard rumors, at least, that Netflix was going to basically clap down on password sharing. I'm sure you guys do this. I've done this. So Netflix, if you're listening, I don't care. I've given friends passwords to use my Netflix. Definitely done this through my life. I think a lot of people do this. Hey, I, for example, my mom uses my Netflix. She's at a different place than where I was living. Who cares? We're family. Give me a break. But anyways, Netflix has been really changing their policies. And they have finally actually announced what they're going to do. Because I think a lot of people thought they were just threatening. They're like, they're not actually going to start enforcing passwords. But here we are. Yahoo Finance reports Netflix accounts will remain shareable, but only with one household. And so before I continue, I should say that they've been cracking down in places like Peru and Chile. Those are some of the places where they've done this because of, I guess, too much password sharing. But the article continues, the U.S. may be next in the first quarter. As a result, Netflix will require users to identify a primary location for all accounts that live within the same household. Users will need, sign, will need to sign into the home Wi-Fi of the primary location at least once every 31 days to ensure their device is not blocked. Good God. Whoever thought that Netflix was going to become the big brother greedy monster? <laughs> Good God. You have to have a primary location. You need to share this location every 31 days or the account you pay for is blocked. Good God, Netflix. And then, okay, here's the thing. Is I like to travel. I like to go abroad. I like to, this is a crazy thing, I know. I like to watch shows sometimes at night on my laptop while I'm traveling. It's relaxing. So, what about travel, you may ask, because Netflix has said there would be a primary location. So, that would be a bit of a problem, right? If I'm in Madrid and my account headquarters is in Reno, Nevada, for example. So, the Yahoo Finance article says here in quotes to bypass this travel issue, The main account holder will need to verify the device through a temporary code. Once verified, the traveling member can watch Netflix for seven consecutive days. But then the article continues. It's unclear if you can request multiple temporary codes following this seven-day period. After that, you may need to pay for an additional account. (laughs) So if I go on a trip for 10 days, does that mean I would need to verify it again? And what if I can't verify it again? Does that mean I can't watch Netflix that I'm paying for while I'm abroad? I mean, I don't know what they are trying to do here. <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy. I get that their revenue's bad. And I, get, I do get that maybe that's an issue, that people share accounts. But HBO's not as worried about this. I know they have Time Warner with them. Hulu's not worried about this. Maybe it's something other than password sharing that Netflix should look in the mirror about. <clears throat> Canceling shows and using algorithms too much. But... Anyways, the last thing I'll add about this is that it seems like to do this, you know, primary location password sharing crackdown, it seems like they're going to need to access way too much of our personal data to do it. And what I mean here is going back to that Yahoo Finance article, it says, Netflix said it will use information such as IP addresses, device IDs, and account activity monitored through your device to determine whether a device signed into the account is connected to the primary location. That just sounds like too much for me. I'm sorry. And, and that's why I go back to, it seems like Netflix wants people to drop their subscriptions, leave them. Like, good God, if I want to go on a trip for 10 days... And I want to use my own Netflix account. It shouldn't require certification codes and only seven days and needing to reaccess it. Look, Netflix, here's the thing. You guys have a few good shows, like Ginny and Georgia and Stranger Things. And sue me if you think those are not good. But you don't have that many good shows out there anymore. It's a lot of just, like, algorithm-based rom-coms and shit. So... I think this is going to backfire on you guys, especially then when your CEO comes out and says you guys have never canceled any good shows. I could do a whole episode on that. So maybe this crackdown's not coming to the U.S., but it's definitely coming to Chile and Peru, and it's likely to come here. So expect to see Netflix have some backlash. And apparently because I'm commentating on culture, I should just add that Tom Brady is retiring for good, as he said. He said that today. He said he's retiring, in quotes, for good, and he's not ashamed of anything he's done, which he shouldn't be. He won seven Super Bowls and set numerous records and played to 45. So the only thing, if I were him, I would be ashamed about is that my ex-wife is seen on the beach with a trainer. But other than that, dude, you have killed it. And, again, I will believe it more once we are in October and the season's already been well underway, and he hasn't come back yet. That's that's what I know, that Tom Brady is done for sure. But look, 23 years in the NFL, probably one of my favorite quarterbacks of all time. I think the haters just hate excellence, in my opinion. But the one thing I will say is I do not like the 49ers. I do not like the San Francisco Niners. I do not like the faithful. And... <laughs> I bet they're not too thrilled about this because a lot of people were thinking maybe they bring in Tom Brady because the rest of the team is quite good, but they need a quarterback to actually play 17 games. As we saw in the NFC Championship this week, that is a big issue. It's, it's pretty bad when your, like, fourth-string quarterback, fourth quarterback gets knocked out and you bring in your injured quarterback who can't even throw and then you use your running back who can't who could not even hit a target. So I think a lot of people were hoping Brady, who's from the Bay— was going to come back to the Bay to end his career. But sorry, Niners faithful. That is probably not the case. But hey, I can't really talk too much because it looks like Aaron Rodgers is going to the Jets, so my Packers might have some trouble. But anyways, as I stare into the abyss, at least the abyss I'm staring into is a beautiful Alpenglow. I'm looking out the window right now. God, the sunset is beautiful. I'm looking out over Verdi Peak, which uh, goes into the Truckee area. And the Alpenglow is just kissing the top of the mountains, putting out this beautiful pink. So, as I just stare into the abyss of my Packers, at least the sun, sunset and Alpenglow is beautiful. Anyways, <clears throat> getting into politics, finally. Do you guys know Matt Schlapp? <laughs> I mean, there's so many things I could say about him, but he is the, what, what the chairman? Uh, what do you call this? I want to be accurate. Uh, is it president, chairman... Um, let's see here yeah the president so Matt, Sch- Matt Schlapp is the president of CPAC the Conservative Political Action Committee they've had our buddy Victor Orban recently they have been at the forefront of insanity CPAC is kind of like the Star Wars bar scene from I think it was the first movie where you just have like every weird like bounty hunter and crazy creature in the galaxy all just coming together CPAC is a nightmare, and Matt Schlapp is the face of it. This is the place where you have, like, Victor Orban talking about family values and Ted Cruz saying my pronouns or kiss my ass, all that type of stuff, (laughs) which is glorious. Anyways, the reason I talk about Matt Schlapp is because NBC, and this is a story that's been going on for almost a month now, but I've just, I guess, missed it. I haven't missed it. I've known about it, but I just haven't talked about it on here. But anyway... NBC writes: One of the nation's most prominent conservative leaders, Matt Schlapp, and a top ally of President Donald Trump, is being accused of sexually groping a male aide on a Georgia Senate <laughs> candidate Herschel Walker's campaign in October. I'm sorry, I I, I shouldn't laugh about this, and I, I I know I shouldn't, but when you know like the politics of Matt Schlapp and all the hypocrisy of Matt Schlapp, it all just fits. Anyways, the NBC article writes in quotes here. The former staffer told NBC that Schlapp reached in between my legs and fondled me. It felt more like hard groping than just fondling. (laughs) And um, NBC News is withholding the staffer's name because, obviously, he's calling out someone for doing something immoral. So they will probably attack his character and get him out of there because it's a bankrupt party, right? It's moral bankruptcy is rampant. And so, of course, if this guy was actually known for calling out his boss for grabbing his nuts, he would probably be fired, not Matt Schlapp. But anyways, I guess this happened where they were at a campaign event, and they were at a bar, and Matt Schlapp was already getting kind of handsy with this guy, and the bar was dead, so Schlapp apologized and said, like, let's go somewhere else, I guess they went there, and this campaign aide, I'm, I'm just reading you know what, what's, what's been reported in the articles I read, but the campaign aide had a, had a Sig Sauer gun on him. And I guess Matt Schlaup was fascinated with it and he's like, what is that gun? And the aide's like a Sig Sauer. And apparently he was surprised to find that Schlaup was unfamiliar with the name of the gun, right? Given CPAC's emphasis on Second Amendment rights, right? And Apparently Schlapp feels up the gun and explains that he didn't have a background in firearms. But again, like, look, guys, Alex Kapitko here from Truckee, California, not a huge shooter. I know what that gun is. And it's just ironic because Schlapp has, like, CPAC and Schlapp have been just NRA ass kissers for a long time. And the fact that, like, he's holding here, like, touching this guy's gun, not knowing what it is, is kind of surprising for the guy who's at the forefront of all this stuff. But anyways... I guess they sit at this new bar, they talk about the gun, He then Matt Schlapp wants to see the gun, and then he grabs the AIDS love gun, if you know what I mean. And look, all jokes aside, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with Matt Schlapp, because the party didn't care back in 2016 when reports came out that Trump was grabbing women by the you-know-whats. But the question is, will they care about a CPAC leader grabbing men because it seems to be that the party is willing to actually condemn crazy acts if it's gay or gay adjacent or it's men on men that type of thing right we have to remember like Madison Cawthorn for example he had those videos of him in a dress and there are reports of him being touchy with his campaign aide and he was they were fine to get rid of him again Trump does you know about 30 years of misconduct with women and they turn away And that's the big question to me, is Schlapp just slapping guys' junk, is that going to be enough for them to stand up to it? Because the GOP has become quite homophobic, and so maybe that's the line. Again, so far it doesn't look that way, because the only marriage that's been ruined is the campaign aides. Apparently his wife has left him. Schlapp is saying he still values conservative values, and he has five kids, and I guess he's doubling down. And there's just so much irony here. The reason I say that is because CPAC is actually holding another, yes, another conference in Budapest, Hungary. And there's just something very unique, ironic, special, whatever you want to say, about Schlapp leading an event in authoritarian Hungary that emphasizes family traditional values while he's also grabbing guys by the junk and apparently, like, you know, cheating on his wife, I guess you could say. SNL couldn't write this stuff, but to me, it's just another example of just pure moral bankruptcy. And again, this guy might get away with it. I mean, Ted Cruz has gone out and defended him, said, I know this guy, he would never do it. Look, everyone's innocent until proven guilty, but it just seems like this is probably true. Look, call me crazy, but it just seems true. Now, moving on, I promise you guys we are going to talk about Egypt, which is the main thing I want to focus on today, but I first wanted to just touch on an expansion of the Tyree Nichols' death and some new thoughts after I did yesterday's episode, and I read slash listened to, basically it was an interview that was put into print in The Atlantic, and it was between David A. Graham, who's a great writer for The Atlantic, and Isabel Fatal, who writes for The Atlantic as well. And Fatal wrote the article after she interviewed Graham and she basically put out a transcript of it. The context of this is that Graham is in Memphis looking to see the aftermath of the video footage of Tyree Nichols's fatal beating by police officers. And he's in Memphis working on a story about where, basically where police reform goes from here. And Fatal just called him to get insight. And I must say that Graham brought up some really interesting points. And I wanted to talk about him and what he's been saying for a moment because I think it goes into some of the stuff I was saying yesterday. I think one troubling insight that Graham voices to us is that while officers do try to manipulate body cams, especially in some cases of brutality, he says in the case of the Tyree Nichols beating... The police really didn't try to manipulate the body cam, and he says this sky po- this sky cop thing, which is like that video surveillance thing, picked it all up. Graham says, in quotes here, there there was no effort to hide this in the video. There's nothing that suggests they thought they made a mistake, either morally or as a matter of police work. And I think that is troubling and brings into question like, how do you reform the police when it seems like they thought they were doing what was protocol? Anyways, the reason I wanted to include some parts from this interview is because Graham says that from his past reporting in Memphis, he heard from a lot of residents in places with high crime. And they talk about how the city is both under-policed and over-policed. Now, bear with me, but I think this is a a fairly important insight that needs us to dive into. So I'm going to go over Graham's full statements in this article. He says in quotes here, When you have a spike in violent crime, as you did in Memphis and in a lot of other American cities in 2020, one of the solutions that a lot of departments turn to is what's called hotspot policing, where you put a lot of officers in an area where there's crime. He then goes on to say, one way you can do it is by sweeping a lot of people up, just arresting a lot of people, stopping people on pretext, and seeing what you can get out of them that may stop crime but it also creates animosity between residents and the police department later in the article he concludes this discussion on the paradoxes of policing he says here in quotes so in memphis this scorpion unit was created in 2021 to deal with violent crime and the sorts of public safety issues that residents are complaining about mainly and what you see them doing instead in this case is terrorizing and killing a a citizen who at worst was driving unsafely, from what we know. So I think it's a clear example of under-policing and over-policing. They're not doing enough to stop violent crime, but they are abusing citizens. (laughs) And I think it's... (coughs) I think think when you talk about culture in the police departments and police reform and white supremacy and everything else, I think there comes a point where you have to say, like, we need to separate ourselves and step back a moment and just say, they are doing the wrong things. Because... (laughs) What could go wrong when you have a police culture in a city like Memphis that's now looking for an issue? They're basically looking for crime and then hoping they find it. Basically, the Memphis police were known for using excessive force. So when the city brought in this hotspot policing, but was not willing to change the culture of the department or was unable to change the culture of the department you get hardcore abuses, and you get a video of all these guys just kind of going along with something atrocious. So, yeah, I mean, it's really, it's really difficult. It's really difficult and sad. Moving on, I want to move overseas for the final segment of today's episode. (laughs) Debt on the Nile. Debt on the Nile. That's a good Economist article from last week debt on the Nile. And I've covered numerous events in Africa, but I really haven't talked too much about Egypt. I know you guys know Egypt, right? It's the place with the really old history, cool pyramids, a river that takes you to cool places like Alexandria up north, down to Luxor in the south, and lots of desert, right? Well, unfortunately, (laughs) Egypt's economy is doing quite horrible. I would say they are on a scale of one to shit, They are right close to shit. And unfortunately, the economy is going to impact pretty much everyone at some point. And I think an Economist article from last week has a really good way to sum it up. The article writes here in quotes, To add to the list of spectacular ruins across Egypt, you can now add its economy. (laughs) And to add some context to this issue, the Egyptian pound, and this is crazy guys, lost half its value over the last year, and according to some reports, has been the world's worst performing currency in 2023 and parts of 2022. I must just say that this is honestly pretty impressive, considering everything we've seen in 2022, from COVID to inflation to grain shortages to the war in Ukraine to climate change to, yes, I'll just, I could keep going on. But anyways, on January 5th, The Egyptian government devalued its currency for the third time in less than a year. And going further, nearly half of the state's revenue goes to servicing its debts, which is not great, and that amounts to 90% of GDP. So that's pretty much maxing out your credit card and using all the money you're bringing in to pay for that credit card debt and going further if that's not enough inflation is also a big issue it's about 20 to 21% like in the US and a lot of Europe it's between like 6 and 8% so we're looking at 20 and 21% and of course issues are made worse because of course you have the war in Ukraine which is causing food food prices throughout Africa to skyrocket now before i get into more of the specifics and why this is going to be awful for the egyptian people I want us to go back in time, take a little trip to the 2010s, the Arab Spring, and what happened in Egypt, because I think the government and the economy have been mismanaged by the military, and for those who are not aware, the military is what runs Egypt after the 2013 coup, which was a reaction to the Arab Spring and a crackdown on the Muslim Brotherhood. So we do need to remember that the Arab Spring only brought momentarily democratic changes to the region, and it was short-lived and definitely didn't happen in Egypt. And Egypt saw almost a backlash to any semblance of the hope. You have to remember that Tunisia was where all of this kind of began, and then you saw like small trickle-ups throughout the rest of the region. But in Egypt, I don't think it was the same case. The 2013 Egyptian coup d'etat took place on the 3rd of July of that year. And basically the background of what happened is that the Egyptian army chief, which I would call, I guess, the leader of the military, though it's a little bit confusing, but he was General Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, who is still Egypt's leader to this day, Egypt's president, so he's someone we all know about. And he led a coalition, basically, that challenged the democratically elected president of Egypt, who is Mohamed Morsi and they removed him from power they were successful and of course this led to suspending the egyptian constitution which was ironically only created in 2012 so only a year earlier and i would say things got really bad once um, al-sisi came to power now the interesting thing is is that as americans we see egypt as kind of an external factor an external actor that works with us and works with us with israeli-palestinian relations works with us on economical issues but we don't see the internal issues that have happened under al-Sisi. And I'll get into it later, but he pretty much did a red scare, like a McCarthy-era-level scare of the Muslim Brotherhood. And it really has ruined Egypt, which I think is why the, like, 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 like why the economy is so mismanaged to this day. But, of course, let's get back to everything here, because, of course, President Morsi, who was disposed... Deposed, sorry, not disposed, deposed um, by the coup. He was not like a gem either. I want to remind people of that, is that the Muslim Brotherhood is something complex that I, I struggle to completely describe in kind of the American context. The Muslim Brotherhood is not ISIS. It's kind of a, a political party that exists like multinationally across like a lot of the Arab world. But it's very antithetical to what, like, a strongman, fundamentalist Muslim would want. And I think that might have been part of the clashes that happened between Morsi and al-Sisi. But anyways, while Morsi was not perfect, and I don't think the country was doing better, he was the first democratically elected president after, like, 30 years of a dictator. But the problem was that there were unproven claims of fraud during this referendum that happened on the Constitution in 2012. And it caused a lot of discontent amongst a lot of Morsi's enemies and the military. And the military was pretty much able to overthrow Morsi quite quickly. And, of course, like what always happens with these type of coups, is they rounded up anyone suspected, even if they weren't, of being part of the Muslim Brotherhood. And an article discusses how the coup caused a lot of ramifications because it talks about how after the coup, there were protests in support of Morsi, obviously. The democratically elected president gets overthrown. Some people are not going to be thrilled. And basically these protests were violently suppressed by the military, the police forces, etc. And this culminated, and it was really bad, culminated with the massacre of a lot of pro-Morsi sit-ins back in, like, August of 2013. Also, at the same time, you had journalists and protesters killed in high, high fucking numbers. And while the numbers are a bit rocky, you get the Muslim Brotherhood reporting close to 3,000 people killed over a couple days, and Human Rights Watch documenting about 1,000 killed, So, I mean, either way, if you want to take an average, you could say probably 2,000 killed, which is not a great number. And, of course, the numbers are rocky. Could have been higher, could have been less, because, like, more, I mean, not more, see, Al-Sisi controls the media now, so it's really hard to know what exactly happened there. But apparently one of the largest killings of protesters in one day in world history occurred during this. And that's when Al-Sisi really took power. And, you know, it's kind of tragic for Egypt because Morsi was flawed, but President Morsi was democratically elected and they had a constitution. And I think Egypt was one of the best examples of how the Arab Spring, as good as it was intended to be, doesn't always work in countries like... It doesn't always work in Arabic countries with like strong views of authoritarian leadership and power. And, of course, <laughs> I should note that Trump did really like Al-Sisi, the current dictator. And that's a song for another time, but I do like to always mention Trump's love. Because if you have any bad leader in the world, Trump usually has something good to say about them. But anyways, going into more detail here, I should also note that Morsi, the former president who was overthrown, he was not the first leader overthrown in the era because Al Jazeera writes in a 2018 article Morsi became the second Egyptian leader to be toppled during a wave of popular uprisings that swept across the Arab world in 2011. The Egyptian people also overthrew the 30-year-old dictatorship of military leader Hassan Mubarak. And you guys have probably heard about Mubarak. He was not good, in my opinion, but he kept stability. But again, he had quite a militaristic opposition to the Muslim Brotherhood. And I challenge my listeners to look into what the Muslim Brotherhood's done for almost causing more extremism. Um... If you look at a lot of like Taliban freedom fighters and a lot of people that went to Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, whatnot to fight for these extremist groups, usually it's because they were convicted of being brotherhood members and they were put in Egyptian prisons and tortured the shit out of until they decided to say something and go away. And the Egyptians have done a really good job of creating radicals, in my opinion. But again, that's another song for another time, so we will continue. So moving on... The coup and the following leadership of Al-Sisi, starting in 2013, completely decimated the country. And again, I'm not saying Morsi was great, but whatever happened next really decimated the country. And since 2013, the military has managed to destroy stability, cause uncertainty, and scare away international markets, which is awful for the well-being of the people, the global order, and just, like, human rights. From my understanding, though, the military basically created a panic about the Muslim Brotherhood that was only just exacerbated after, after about 2015. This seems when there was another purge. And they targeted anyone who seemed to be affiliated with the Muslim Brotherhood. And the government held trials, targeted members... And killed like 700 people in, a scheme, in like a scheme of a couple days. And there's a guy, Abdullah Al-Iran, who's a professor of history at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service in Qatar, by the way, so not the one in D.C. But he told Al Jazeera in quotes here, the Egyptians' government actions send a stark message to all Egyptians that under the resurgent authoritarian rule of the Sisi regime, Dissent will not be tolerated. Going further, Sarah Yerkes, who I really quite like, uh, she has a good statement she put out with the Carnegie Endowment for for, uh, International Peace. And she says in quotes here, "...under Mubarak (laughs) there was not much room for dissent, but there were also clear red lines. People could mostly go about their business as long as they did not criticize Mubarak, Islam, or the security forces. Today no one is safe." And through my research up to this episode, I was reading about how, like, Mubarak was kind of a Saddam Hussein type of figure. Of course not the same. So don't call me out on saying they're – what I mean is he was a guy that was looking for stability through through autocracy. Like, I think, you know, going back to the economist index I was reading at the top of the show, you had dark red autocracies and light red autocracies. I think under Mubarak, it would be a light red autocracy or almost a hybrid regime where they wanted to maintain a strong military state, but also, like, he understood that he needed the people to be part of it. But in this case, it seems like al-Sisi is, like, willing to, like, punish anyone who doesn't particularly agree with him. And there, like, during my research, I remember reading something of, like, there was an Egyptian in Cairo who was saying, like, I don't even feel safe sleeping because... While Mubarak would just criticize dissent, al-Sisi comes for you while you're sleeping. And that's why this country is in such a volatile place. So, moving on again, the country has just kind of created an authoritarian nightmare of fear, uncertainty, and disability. And, of course, when you're targeting anyone who's part of the Muslim Brotherhood, which I don't know a lot of you, but if a lot of my listeners, I mean, is that if you know anything about, like, This area, the Muslim Brotherhood has been very important and I don't want to say a secular version of Islam, but a version of Islam that does differ a little bit from a lot of the more extremism, fundamentalism, and they're very prevalent in this area. So anyways, while we have this authoritarian nightmare, of course, Egypt has been able to kind of stay afloat because it's a close ally, again, as I've mentioned earlier with the United States, Saudi Arabia, and Israel. So it's in good company. And so it's hard, I think, for a lot of criticism to fly when it is kind of seen as somewhat of a bulwark against other groups in the area. But that's not... I mean, I don't want to talk about that. So moving on again. At first, it was fear, oppression, and a crackdown on dissent after the coup in 2013. But of course... When you have such a command economy trying to work in a global system, it's going to backfire. Because it looks like Egyptian society is now being crushed by a very heavy weight, which we can call economic disorder. And the IMF, of course, is involved, as are much of the Western countries and the Gulf states, like Qatar, Saudi Arabia. Some of them, they're fucking pissed, I will say. But the IMF... I think can help us understand how bad things are because it has a study that notes, and this is a 2022 study, so it's not even updated for how bad things are now. But the 2022 study notes, in quotes here, that around a third of Egyptians live on less than $2 a day. Another third are on the brink of joining them. Troubling when you have a command economy built by the military that has no end in sight. Now, going back to the Economist article from earlier, things... Look bad now. But I I do want to address the fact, the elephant in the room here, is that the Egyptian economy is not only because of al-Sisi's regime. It's not only because of the government. Look, tourism is down because of the war in Ukraine. I didn't know this. <laughs> I'll start with the number and tell you what I didn't know, but tourism generated close to 10% of GDP for Egypt, which makes sense. Like, I know people currently that are in Egypt right now. Like, I want to go to Egypt. I would love to fucking go to Egypt. Like, Egypt is a place that makes sense to visit. But I guess, and I was reading in The Economist, (laughs) the problem is that a lot of Russians are actually part of the Egyptian tourism economy, and obviously they aren't coming as much for a myriad of reasons that I don't need to explain to you guys. Going out further, Ukraine and Russia... From every study I've seen, are the two main suppliers of bread and grain to Egypt? The Economist writes here in quotes, higher wheat prices have made it ruinously expensive for the government to, to provide the ultra-cheap, subsidized bread that Egyptians have come to expect. Makes sense, doesn't it? Of course Egypt is being hit by external factors, so of course we need to keep that in mind. I don't think anyone is disagreeing with that by any means but it's a big but the army is the biggest issue here much like i want to talk in a probably tomorrow or the next day about myanmar but in this case it's the same the army controls a lot of output it seized a lot of important exporters a lot of important importers and a lot of important controls on the economy here's just a few examples The Economist in that same article writes here, Everything from petrol stations to mineral waters to olives are controlled by the government. It has hooked the fish farming market and engineered control over car making. The Security services have bought up big chunks of Egypt's media. The army built a new cement plant causing a supply of glut that crushed private firms. In industry after industry, it squeezes out or scares off competitors, deterring private investment. Now, guys, that is the problem here. This is Alex speaking, not The Economist. And I talked about this probably multiple times over the last year on the podcast, is that the reason why Africa keeps struggling is A, bad economics, B, imperialism, C, history, but D, atrocious autocrats who scare off foreign direct investment. And when you have that perfect storm, it's going to be a fucking nightmare. And... The problem here is that, of course, there are talks of another IMF bailout. And I understand why. Because, of course, most of the world and a lot of the international monetary fund, as well as the World Bank, they fear that the country will collapse if we don't bail them out. And what does that mean, if you're asking? It means a less stable, a less nice, a poorer, and a more angry country that could send refugees across Europe, And it could make Egypt a more violent place, or even a problem, for its neighbors. But that being said, the military doesn't want to help. Because in December of 2022, so what, like a a little bit over a month ago, the military met with the IMS, when I say the military, I mean the Egyptian government, and... The deal was is that it needed to pull out of non-strategic sectors. Like, I read you some of the sectors earlier that the Egyptian military is involved in. Look, petrol stations I can understand, but mineral water, olives, fish farming market, car making, media, cement plants, that scares out foreign investment at a time when the military can't provide anything. And the IMF wants to make a deal here, but it seems like the military wants to hold on to power. So this becomes difficult when the economy is having the issues it's having. So I just worry, and I'm going to wrap this up with this, is that I just worry that Egypt's allies are getting less generous. Qatar, Saudi Arabia, for example, are becoming less willing to come to the aid of Egypt. And if you look internally, people are getting more desperate, poor, and angry. We don't want Egypt, the most stable country in North Africa, to become Algeria or Libya. If it can become a hybrid regime like Morocco, I'm fine with that. But we don't want it becoming the other two. And we are seeing chaotic clashes occurring. And if the economy's bad and the military mismanagement continues... I don't have a good thought about what's next. So anyways, I thank you guys for listening. Again, a little bit longer episode, but I am truly worried about, you know, generally generally speaking, like let's go back to wrap this up to the world's most democratic and least democratic countries. I'm going to zoom in on Egypt here for a second. Egypt is now... Not dark red like China or Afghanistan, but it's very close to Russia. Russia is 146. Egypt is 131. Egypt gets a democracy score out of 10 of 2.93. Russia gets one of 2.28. So Russia and Egypt are quite close. And it's a shame because I think a couple years ago there was a lot of hope. And I'm just looking at this map again. Egypt needs to be more like Algeria and Morocco. I don't think it happens, though. So, anyways, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube. I probably missed something. So, I love you guys, and take care. I'll be back.